Let me encourage you to turn now for the second week to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll focus on verses 4 through 7, but once again I'm going to read to you the entirety of the chapter. Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, I pray again this morning very simply that you would speak so that we are moved to love one another, to love the world around us, and to love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most oft-quoted lines from a movie when I was a little bit younger was the following, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. I could probably say the accent a little better when I first moved here. Um, And I don't necessarily recommend the movie, but I think the, the line is memorable. Forrest Gump said, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. And it's memorable not only because of his funny accent, it's memorable to me because of the sentiment that it passes on. Namely, you don't have to be a large intellect to have a large heart. Indeed, it's better to have the large heart, isn't it, than just only the mind. That's what Paul's arguing here in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? Especially in those first three verses that we saw last week. You can have all the gifts in the world You can have all the knowledge in the world, but without love, it's nothing. You can possess faith that moves mountains, but without love, it profits you nothing, and so on. So you don't have to be a smart man to know what love is. You don't have to be a gifted man to know what love is. You don't have to have great faith to have great love. In fact, Paul says in verses 1 through 3 that some of the most able people, some of the most gifted people, evidently don't really know what love is. 
And because they don't in the church at Corinth and in the churches in general, because we so often seem to forget what love really is, Paul, now in these next few verses, decides he's going to give us a definition. Isn't that helpful? Love is so important, he said last week. He says at the end of the chapter, it's the greatest of all the Christian virtues. But if he didn't tell us what it was, we still might fail. But he doesn't do that. In verses 4 through 7, he gives us this famous definition of love. We may all think we know what love is, but when we read these verses, we're reminded that there is far for us to go in our knowledge and in our application of love. And Paul wants to make sure that we understand what it really means for us to love one another. So listen to his long definition, multi-part definition, again in verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There's a lot there, isn't there? There are at least 12 different parts to Paul's definition. You could break it down perhaps into as many as 15, but I've chosen to simplify it into 12. And at the risk of being tedious this morning... All I know to do is just to walk through each of these 12 things. And so the sermon today, pardon me for this, but the sermon today is going to have 12 points to it and then some more after that. So we just need to walk through and look and see what Paul says and consider what it means in our lives. First, he says, verse 4, love is patient. Love is patient. The Greek there literally means love suffers long. And that's helpful, isn't it? Love suffers long. Paul is letting us know right off the top to love someone is to suffer. Because anyone and everyone that you love is going to be a sinner. And that means that anyone and everyone that you love is going to sin. They're going sometimes to hurt you. They're going sometimes to annoy you. They're going sometimes to let you down. And what Paul says here is love is willing to be patient with such people. People don't change as fast as we like, and so if we love them, we are patient. Are you patient with those whom you profess to love? This very first part of Paul's definition hits me right between the eyes. And maybe it does some of you as well. Who tries your patience? There are people that do that, aren't there? But the question is, what would it look like for you To truly love that person. Love is patient. Secondly, he says love is kind. Again in verse 4, love is kind. Now, I looked at that and I thought about how I could give uh, sort of a profound explanation of what it means to be kind. And then I thought to myself, this one's really not that complex, isn't it? Is it? We know what it means to be kind. The problem, and this is with all of these things in Paul's list here, the problem is less a problem of our knowing what these things mean as much as it is our application of them with people in our lives. Love is kind. Are you kind or grumpy? Are you kind or smart aleck? 
Are you kind or aloof? All of us can be unkind in different ways. How are you unkind? And to whom are you unkind? And what will it look like for you to love them? Love is kind. Thirdly, Paul says, love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. Still in verse 4. If you truly love someone, you won't be upset if they get more attention than you. Or if they have more success than you. Or if they get more candy than you, children. Or if they get away with something that you didn't get away with. Love is not jealous. If we love people, we will be happy when God blesses them. Not envious when God blesses them. If we love people, we'll rejoice when they rejoice, right? Love is not jealous. Now, as an aside, this verse is not dealing with husbands and wives and jealousy over members of the opposite sex who may have relationships with them. This is not a verse, men or ladies, that you can pull out to excuse yourself from being imprudent in your relationships with someone who's not your spouse. That's not at all what Paul has in mind here. In fact, God is jealous for the affections of his bride, the church, isn't he? And so as a spouse, whether a husband or a wife, you ought to be jealous that you are the one and the only in that relationship. There is a righteous jealousy when a spouse is flirtatious or immodest or imprudent or what have you. And that's not what Paul has in mind here. Here, Paul is simply speaking of the inability sometimes for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Are you able to rejoice with those who rejoice? Love, he says, is not jealous. In the next place, still in verse 4, he says, Love does not brag and is not arrogant. I think those two are similar. We'll put them together. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. And this is really the flip side of the previous coin. Jealousy, on the one hand, is a poor response to another person's success. Arrogance is a poor response to your own success. And sometimes we can be arrogant with the people we profess to love, can't we? Who makes all the money in this family anyway? Or... Who's the one who does all the housework around here? That's arrogance, isn't it? And that's the kind of arrogance that Paul's speaking of here. Sometimes it's arrogance that we specifically direct at another person that we are supposed to love, and it's not loving. And sometimes it's just a general arrogance with everybody. I'm always right. I always have a better idea. I always have a funnier story than your story when we're sitting together over the lunch. Some people are just arrogant in general. It doesn't even occur to them that other people might have thoughts, and we all need to be aware of that. Perhaps need to ask other people, am I like that? Am I that person? It's not loving to be arrogant, to always think that you're right, and that, in essence, to say to the other person, your thoughts don't matter as much as mine. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Verse 5, he says, love does not act unbecomingly. In everyday English, we would say love is not rude. Rude. The very fact that we don't know what the word unbecoming means is a problem in our culture, incidentally. We don't know what it is to be unbecoming because 
it's so rampant that we don't even use the word anymore. Certain things in every culture are unbecoming. They are rude. They're improper. Now, sometimes when you're young, it's easy to say, well, that's just old fogeyism. And sometimes, frankly, perhaps it is. And sometimes it's not. But Paul doesn't deal with whether or not social convention where you live or where I live is old fogeyism or whether it's right. He just says, if you love someone, you'll keep good form in these areas in your culture. If it's rude in your culture not to clean your plate, you'll clean your plate. If it's rude in your culture not to call older people by their first name, you'll learn to say Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so. If it's rude in your culture to be late or to dress slovenly, then you won't do those things if you love the people with whom you're dealing. Love accommodates itself. Love doesn't act improper, he says. And note that there are other things that are unbecoming for a Christian no matter what culture you live in. There are certain things that are cultural. In one place it might be different than another. But there are certain things that are unbecoming for us no matter who we are, no matter where we live. Immodesty in our dress. Interrupting people. Coarse jesting. All these things that are offensive to other people. And if we love them, what Paul is saying here is we won't do that. If we love people, we'll accommodate. If we love people, sometimes we will just back away from what we want to do and we will keep good form. Sometimes, let me say, we don't know what these things are. Sometimes we don't know if we're being rude or not. We may be in a new place. We may be with a different culture or a different age set. And we're not really sure. And in that case, a wise thing to do is just to stop and ask an older Christian, what is appropriate for me? That's a good thing for young Christians to learn. Just to ask older people, what is appropriate for me to do in these various settings? Paul says, if we love people, we'll carry ourselves with dignity. Love does not act unbecomingly. Still in verse 5, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. Love doesn't hoard money. Love gives away money. Love is not stingy with time. Love gives time. Love doesn't have to be first in line. Love doesn't have to have the best parking space. Love is willing to lend to others. And we could list a whole other list of ways that love is willing to inconvenience itself for the sake of others. Because love doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't mind inconveniencing itself. Love gives itself to others. How do you give yourself to others? How ought you? How ought I? Love, Paul says, does not seek its own. Still in verse 5, he says, love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Love doesn't become aggressive when someone is impatient with you. Remember verse 4? Love is patient. So you can take that and say, well, he's not being very patient, and then you can be provoked. But he says, no, love's not provoked. Love doesn't retaliate when someone's unkind. Well, love is kind, and he's not being unkind, and so I'm going to be unkind to him. No, love is not provoked. Love doesn't make snide remarks when someone's not obeying the social convention. So we gave a word to younger people where we normally fall foul, and let's give a word to older people where older people normally fall foul. The younger people sometimes don't act becomingly. The older people sometimes get really snarky when the younger people don't act unbecomingly. And Paul's saying neither one is right, is it? 
Love doesn't act unbecomingly, but if someone is being unbecoming, love is not provoked. Isn't that good? So we all get along, even if the other person is not doing what they ought to do. Love responds to all of these different things with a gentle answer, with prayer, with pity on those who aren't doing right. It's not provoked. Is that how you respond? Or are you easily angered? Sometimes we call it a short temper. Well, I just have a short temper. Well, maybe you do just have a short temper, but the Bible calls it being provoked. And it says being provoked is a lack of love. Love is not provoked. Still in verse 5, love, he says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love is not easily offended. Love does not cling to bitterness and allow it to fester. Love is quick to forgive. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Some versions translate it, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love isn't, I have this mental file where I've written down all the bad things that you've done so I can throw them at you when it's convenient for me and it will help me win an argument. Love doesn't do that. It's quick to forgive. I wonder if this convicts anyone this morning. Again, this convicts me. Is anyone this morning holding a grudge? Anyone this morning holding on to unforgiveness? Anyone this morning wallowing in self-pity? Now, I understand that that other person perhaps was not loving to you, and I don't demean that at all, but that doesn't mean that you can't still be loving to them. That's what Paul's saying. People are going to wrong you. But love does not take those things into account. Love doesn't keep a record. Incidentally, isn't that how God loves us? That great verse in Psalm 103, verse 13, as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. And in the words of John, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If God removes our sins as far from his consciousness as east is to west, then we ought to do the same. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Now, I'm so glad that this is here as a balance, because so often we think that love means I will never point out another person's sin. I will never question their behavior. I will never critique what they're doing, because, quote, that wouldn't be loving. And often, let me say this and hear this well, we do it in a very unloving way. But Paul doesn't say that we should not do it. This chapter says the truly unloving thing is not that we finger someone else's sin. The truly unloving thing is when we smile at someone else's sin. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. Now that doesn't mean, as I said, that you beat people. But if you love someone, you won't just act as if I'm okay, you're okay, when they're in obvious sin. If you love, you won't be able to celebrate unbiblical relationships. 
If you love, you won't be able to smile at someone's ill-gotten gain. If you love, you won't be able to wink at their addictive habits. If you love your children, you won't think that their sins are cute. No. An area where we really need help as Christians is 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Some of us, on the one hand, are so harsh as to be unbecoming towards people who are struggling with sin, and others of us, in an attempt to be loving, and perhaps with the right motives, we give approval to behaviors that ought to break our hearts. And to do that, Paul says, is actually the opposite of love. To pat someone on the back while they're on their way to hell is the epitome of unlove. It's not that we don't want to rejoice with people. It's just that we want to rejoice in what's good and true in their lives, not in what's unrighteous. We want to rejoice in their salvation, in their holiness. So we must therefore grieve over their sin. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things. And I think he says something very similar at the end of the verse, and we're going to put them together. Love endures all things. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. I think this is in some way a summary statement of some of the things he said before. What does it mean for love to be patient? What does it mean for love not to keep a record of wrong? What do those things mean? Well, they're the same as saying love bears all things. Love endures all things. Love's not provoked. Love doesn't give up that easily or at all. As we said off the top, to love someone is to suffer, right? To love someone is to be emotionally and in other ways tangled up with somebody who is a sinner, just like you. But if you truly love them, Paul says here, you'll stick it out. If you truly love them, you will endure whatever difficulties they may throw up on the screen of your life. If you love them, you will bear all things. You won't rejoice in all things. You won't like all things. You won't feel happy about all things, but you'll bear all things. And perhaps this is a word in season to someone this morning. Perhaps... There's someone in this room who has been tempted in recent days to just cut so-and-so out of your life and to write them out of your story. Wouldn't it be convenient if we could do, like, do that like they do on TV, right? Someone is, is leaving the show, and so they write an episode that writes that person out of the story. They move to California, they're killed in a plane crash or whatever, and the story never has to pick them up again, right? And we would think, oh, well, I wish I could do that with so-and-so. Not if we love them. Love doesn't write people out of the story. Love, when it's tempted to write people out of the story, puts down the pen and endures all things and bears all things. In the 11th place, love believes all things. Believes all things. It seems to me the connotation here is that love gives people the benefit of the doubt. 
Love doesn't always suspect that someone's trying to get over on us. Love thinks the best about people. Love is not suspicious. Now, that doesn't mean that love is gullible or foolish. He's already talked about not rejoicing in people's unrighteousness. But what he's saying here is that love is not unnecessarily suspicious or mistrusting. Love wants to trust the other person. Love wants to think well of them. Love wants to give them the benefit of the doubt. Love wants to believe the best. And if the world thinks that that makes Christians suckers, so be it. Because this is what the Bible teaches. Love believes all things. Love thinks the best of people. Now let me give you an example All of you drive around the city, and you see people begging on the side of the road, right? They have a sign that says, I need help, I'm hungry, and so on. And perhaps your own experience, and certainly probably the culture around you, has taught you to have a tinge of distrust, or maybe just an outright distrust when you see someone like that. Sometimes our own stinginess helps that distrust along, doesn't it? But we're suspicious many times. And yet here, Paul says, if we love that person, though we've never seen them before, we will believe all things. If we love that person, we will say to ourselves, now I know that there are con artists out there, but Lord, I'm not going to assume that about this woman. I'm not going to assume that this man is one of them. I'm going to believe the best. And if... We're to think the best and believe the best about someone we don't know who's standing at the end of the interstate exit. What about our kids? What about our spouse? What about our brothers and sisters in Christ? Can we not say of one another, instead of being suspicious, can we not say of one another, she probably didn't mean it like that. He's probably just having a bad day. I should give him the benefit of the doubt. Can we not say, if my parents had to do it over, I'm sure they would do things differently. I'm not going to hold a grudge against them. That's what love does. Love believes the best. Love believes all things. And finally, he says at the end of verse 7, or towards the end of it, love hopes all things. Hopes all things. Charles Hodge, the theologian at Princeton Seminary in a century gone by, points out that Hoping all things is similar to believing all things, only with a future dimension. Not only am I going to believe the best about what she just said, but also I'm going to hope the best for the future of this relationship. Love hopes all things. With God's help, we can get through this. That's how love talks. With God's help, we will make it. With God's help, the relationship will be restored. With God's help, this marriage will be beautiful again. With God's help, he can change. With God's help, she can walk with the Lord. Love thinks and talks like that. Love hopes all things. Now, let me say this as we move, not too quickly, but as we move toward a conclusion. Let me say this. I know that this is a difficult sermon. It's difficult for two different reasons at least. First, I've given you 12 points this morning. That's a large number of points, isn't it? Even for me, 
And so I realize that may make it difficult for you to go home with the sermon in your mind. It may make it difficult for you to go home and remember what you heard. It's much easier when the sermon is something as simple and straightforward as Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel, right? Study, practice, teach. That was easy. Or Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's easy to remember, isn't it? And so I've been preaching some sermons like that because I think they're helpful. This one, on the other hand, is hard to remember. It's much less difficult, or much more difficult, I should say, to remember 12 points, much less to apply them. But maybe, even if you don't remember all 12, maybe there were one or two this morning that really struck home. Over time, you need to do all of these things and love in all of these ways yes but maybe today there was one thing or a couple of things that Paul said that the Holy Spirit is already using to convict you and so I just ask you so that you put them firmly in your mind which of Paul's statements hit you most squarely this morning let me read them to you again and you think which of these has the Holy Spirit already begun to convict me about and let me file this away for future use. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Which one or two of those did you need to hear the most? File it away in your mind right now and then go home this week and pray about it. Chew on it some more and do something about what God says. That's one reason why the sermon might be difficult because there's so much here to think about. But in the second place, I also realize that this sermon is difficult even more so because this chapter is convicting. You may have felt this morning like I just pulled back as hard as I could and shot 12 arrows at you just to make you feel bad about how you're struggling to love other people. And if we feel that way, I hope it's because that's the way Paul wrote this passage, not because I've mishandled it. I do think Paul and I do think the Holy Spirit intended this passage to be tough. We, we, we put it on greeting cards, and rightly so, but I told you last week, this was not written as a poem. This was written to a church that was having real problems loving one another. A church that was overrun with cliques, that was known for its pride and its elitism and so on. And I think Paul wrote this chapter in order that they would feel the arrows going into their hearts. The chapter, I think, is meant to sting, especially if we have any Corinthian blood in us. And we all do, don't we? We all struggle in some of these ways, if not all of them. And so it's supposed to hurt a little bit. But remember that God wounds us, we're told in the Old Testament, so that he can heal us. And let me also say that if you're wounded this morning but you will read these verses from a slightly different angle, they will no longer sting you, but they will heal you. 
God wounds us so that he can heal us, and sometimes he wounds us and he heals us with the very same words. Let me tell you how I think we need to read this passage before we finish this morning. I don't think it's out of context for us to read these words, not only as a portrait of how the Christian should love, but I think we should also read these verses as a portrait of how the Christ does love. Isn't Jesus the perfect example of love? Doesn't he say, as I've loved you, so you also ought to love one another? But how has he loved us? Well, read verses 4 through 7 again, and I think you'll see how he loves us. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, I'm not going to preach a whole nother sermon. I'm not going to go through the whole list again. But isn't it striking how well those verses describe the love of God for us in Christ? Isn't this a wonderful picture of how Jesus loves you? Love is patient, verse 4. And how patient God is with his children. Look at how often you have failed him, even this week. And yet, verse 7, he's borne all things. He has not been provoked by you, verse 5. If you're in Christ, he has not taken account of your wrongdoings, verse 5. But rather, he's forgiven you 70 times 7, right down to the sins that you and I have committed already today. And where is all that love and patience most manifest? The love of God for us in Christ, where do we see it best? At the cross, right? And don't we find the love of the cross described here in 1 Corinthians 13 as well? Is not the cross the supreme example, verse 5, of love not seeking its own? Surely it is. Jesus could have preserved himself, couldn't he? He could have called those 10,000 angels to come and take him down from the cross. He could have lived to see many more days, but love does not seek its own. Love gives itself. Love sacrifices itself. And if there was anybody who ever loved like that, it was Jesus. And so I tell you, 1 Corinthians 13 is about no one if it's not about Jesus. He is the essence of love. And perhaps no phrase in this chapter describes his love better than that at the end of verse 7. Love endures all things. And oh, what Jesus endured because he loved us. Our sins threw up onto the windshield of his life all sorts of mess that he endured, the jeers of the crowds, the slaps in the face, the spit in his eye, the thorns in his brow, the whips on his back, the spikes in his hands and feet. All of these things were in Jesus' life because of me and because of you. This is what we deserve. And yet, because he loved us, He endured all things.
Love, in this case, even endured the penalty for our sins. And this is my hope when I read 1 Corinthians 13 and when it stings. And every time I read this passage, it stings. But my hope is that though I have been very slow in measuring up to the 1 Corinthians 13 ideal, Jesus, verse 4, is patient. My hope is that though I'm getting a lot of these things wrong, Jesus does not take into account a wrong suffered. Verse 5. My hope is that though the list of my failures to love others grows ever longer, Jesus, verse 7, bears all things, including the penalty for my sin. I hope you know the love of this Jesus. It's his, 1 Corinthians 13, love that motivates us to extend that same love to others, isn't it? And it's his, 1 Corinthians 13, love that stays with us even when we fail.